Hi, my name is Jeff Redding. I'm a preaching elder here at Walton Community Church in Monroe, Georgia. Before we begin the sermon, our church would like to invite you to join us as we gather every Sunday morning for worship at 10 a.m. You can learn more about our church on our website at waltoncommunitychurch.org. Thanks for listening. All right, thank you, Daniel. Good morning, WCC. Good morning, everyone. It's wonderful to celebrate this Easter Sunday with you. Uh, if you're a guest, thank you for being here. Also, don't expect that the guys will be wearing ties any other Sunday of the year, okay? So, you guys, you're looking good. Uh, for guests, we do hope you feel welcome. Just a couple of things before I begin the sermon. One is just, this is for our church, just a, a scheduling thing. Next week, I'm going to preach part two of a little series about handing down the faith to our kids. And what, I've, what really has been burdening me is around two out of three kids raised in the church end up leaving the church in their 20s, and many of them never return. So as a church, we want to, to pray and think about what we can do to pass along the faith to our kids. So that's what I'm going to be preaching on next week. Also, if you're a first-time visitor, uh, I know that reciting scripture and saying things like the Apostles' Creed can be kind of weird. Uh, in our day, churches rarely do this kind of stuff, so I know it can be kind of strange. But there are a number of reasons we do this. One of them has to do with our kids, that we want our young people not only to, to hear truth, but to participate and to speak truth with their own mouths. Also, we want our time together to be where all of us participate in worshiping God. We don't just want to look at people up on a stage doing something. We want to participate in worship together. And also, although this kind of service can, can seem odd at first, what we found is most people find after a few weeks that they actually like it, they actually enjoy it. Uh, you also find that your, your kids and you will be able to say the Lord's Prayer, Apostles' Creed, sing the doxology, things like this with almost no effort at all. So anyway, it's just another way that God's truth can go down deep in our souls. All right, let's get to the sermon. I'm going to have sort of an extended introduction. I don't want you to think about certain things. And then we're going to talk about the resurrection of Jesus Christ on this Easter Sunday. Let me give you a little bit about my background and you can have a better understanding about where I'm coming from. Up until age 25, I was a skeptic of Christianity. I was an agnostic. And most of the time, I wasn't loud and obnoxious about this. And I had friends and family who were Christians. But just being honest, this is just me being honest, until age 25, I thought to myself, and I'm embarrassed to say this, but I thought to myself that Christians were really ignorant and uneducated people. I honestly, I honestly did not understand how an intelligent person could be a Christian. I thought that science had disproved religion, and I thought Christians just weren't too smart, that Christians were people who believed in silly myths. I also thought that religion was just a crutch to help weak people. So that's my background. So think about how weird this is. Now I'm up here on Easter Sunday trying to convince people that Christianity is true, trying to show Jesus that really has been raised from the dead. It's crazy. So what I'd like to do this morning is to preach a sermon, very personal to me. I would like to preach a sermon to myself if 24-year-old Jeff, skeptical, agnostic Jeff, walked into this worship service, what would I want him to hear? That's what I'm going to do this morning. That's what I'm going to preach on. And my hope is, my hope is even if you're already a committed Christian, I hope this won't be boring. I hope you'll be strengthened in your faith at least a little bit. And for those of you who are committed, who are skeptical of Christianity, my hope is simply that you'll think about these things. 
That's really what I want you to do is give some serious thought to this. I hope that you'll give us a fair hearing and, and that you'll think deeply about what I'm saying. Okay, so, so when I was in college and when I was in my early 20s, this is what I thought. Okay, this is my thinking. I thought that no religion had a monopoly on the truth. That's what I would say. I would say, even if there was a God, and I wasn't sure, but I said, even if there was a God, no religion had a monopoly on the truth. That's what I thought. So I thought you could take a little bit from Christianity, you could take a little bit from Islam or Buddhism or Hinduism or New Age Scientology. I read Dianetics, which is the Scientology book. I thought you could take a little bit from all these and, and get some truth, but I thought that all these religions really had their blind spots. That's what I believed. Here's a, here's a common analogy, a common illustration that's popular today. And you may have heard this because people like it. And this is the way that I thought about religions. So, so pretend that my 24-year-old self is, is talking to you. Okay? And I find out you go to church. And then I tell you this story. I say, imagine a group of blind men walking down the road and they come upon an elephant, okay? And so these blind men come upon an elephant, and they're touching the elephant, different parts of the elephant, and they're trying to describe the elephant. And one man is touching the elephant's trunk, and he says, this is what an elephant is like. It's like curvy, like a snake, right? It moves around. And another blind man is touching the elephant's leg, and he says, no, an elephant is like a tree trunk. That's what an elephant is like. And then another one is touching the side of the element, elephant and he says no you're wrong an elephant is like a wall okay so all of them are blind and they're all trying to figure out what this elephant is and then my younger self says to you this is the way all the religions of the world are all the religions of the world are like these blind men the Christian from his perspective he describes God in this way but he's blind he's just feeling around in the dark the best he can and the Muslim He's, he's describing God, but he only has part of the truth. He's blind to the complete picture. And Hinduism, Buddhism, New Age, whatever, they're, they're all blind to the truth. They're describing God the best they can. They're describing reality the best they can, but they're blind. So I would say to you, all these religions are just feeling around in the dark, but they're blind to the complete picture, okay? So I'll tell you that story, and as, as I said, when I was a skeptic, I love this analogy, and I thought it pretty accurately described the religions of the world. It's a good story, isn't it? I think it's a good one. It's very, pretty powerful. So my thought was, maybe there's a God, but all these different religions only have a small part of this truth. But they're blind to the big picture. So I tell you the story, and I'd probably say, burn, you know, I got you. Because uh, I would be all excited about this. So, so, but I want you to think about something in the story. You may not realize it. But in the story, there is one person who's not blind. There is one person who has the complete picture. He has all the truth. He has a monopoly on the truth. And you know who that is? It's the skeptic. It's the person telling the story. Everybody else is blind. But the skeptic, the one who doesn't believe, the non-religious person, he has the full picture. Everybody else is blind. So the skeptic, as I said, has a monopoly on the truth. He doesn't believe any religion. He's the only one else who, who's not blind. So everybody else is blind, but not me. As I'm telling the story, I'm not like these religious people. I can see the entire picture. I can see the entire elephant, okay? I'm the only one with my eyes open. 
Don't you see that this is a faulty way of looking at the world? Because the assumption is, again, that the skeptic is the only one who's not blind. The skeptic's the only one who has everything. That is, I think everyone would acknowledge, that is a very arrogant way of viewing the world, that I have my eyes open as a skeptic, but everybody else is blind. So here's my challenge to you this morning. If you're not a committed follower of Jesus, I would ask you this. Would you be willing to consider, at least to consider, at least the possibility that you don't have the full picture? And that's what I would question my 24-year-old self. Would you be willing to consider the possibility that you don't have the full picture about God, the full picture about reality? Would you be willing to consider the possibility that you're the one who's blind? That's what I would say to myself. I'd also say this to to 24-year-old me, and this comes from a book called How to Think by Alan Jacobs. We'll talk more about that actually next week. But this is what I would say to younger me. I would tell this story. There was, a, there was a young lady named Leah who went to Yale University. And Leah was an atheist. She was raised in a secular home from Long Island. Uh, and she joined a debating society at school, or at Yale. Now, this is what's interesting. In this debating society at Yale, after a couple of years, if you applied for a leadership position, they would ask you this question. They would say, did you ever break someone on the floor? Did you ever break someone on the floor? And what that means is to break someone on the floor meant that you got the other person to change their mind right there, right then, in the middle of the debate. You got them to to acknowledge that they were wrong right there in the middle of the debate, okay? That was breaking someone on the floor. It was huge. It was a huge accomplishment. But here's the thing that's even more interesting about this debate society. Yeah, when a student tried to, to come into a leadership position, they would also ask this. They not only said, did you ever break someone on the floor, but they would ask this, have you ever been broken on the floor? In other words, did you ever change your mind right in the middle of the debate and acknowledge that what you believed was wrong, and now you believe something else? So they would say, have you ever been broken on the floor? And in this debate society, if you never were broken on the floor, you never acknowledged that you were wrong during a debate, then you weren't fit for leadership. Because what they thought was, if you never changed your mind, you never considered alternative views, if you never changed your mind, you weren't debating in good faith. You had your position locked in and you refused to think about another person's point of view. Because what are the odds that an 18-year-old kid going to Yale has a correct belief and a correct understanding on every single issue, right? So it's the same for us. This is what I would say to 24-year-old skeptical me. When it comes to Christianity, Jeff, could you be broken on the floor? Would you be willing to honestly consider evidence for Christianity? Would you be willing to honestly reconsider your views about the Christian faith, or are you just locked in and you will refuse to consider any alternative? Okay? So that's what I would say. Could it be younger, skeptical Jeff, that your views about God are wrong, that your views about Christianity are wrong? And I would ask this too, is there anything, this is what I'm also asking to anybody who's not a committed Christian, is there anything that could be presented to you so you would say, you know what, I thought this about God, about religion, but this evidence has shown me that I'm wrong. So I'm asking what evidence could be presented to you to convince you that your view of God is wrong? See, this this shows whether you're willing to be broken on the floor. And I would ask this to younger me, 
as well, is there anything, again, that could make you doubt these beliefs? Right? Is there any evidence that could be presented? Because this, if there's no amount of evidence, if there's no amount of evidence that could make you change your mind, then that means your beliefs are not based on facts. They're not based on evidence. They're not based on truth. If you refuse to believe, no matter what the evidence is, you're holding on to this, this view. Right? I mean, if your view of God is not going to change no matter what, if you could not be broken on the floor, then you're not honestly considering Christianity. So now I want to talk about evidence for the Christian faith. And again, I would say to my younger self, I would say you may be surprised at this, but the Bible teaches this, that the Christian faith is based on evidence. Christianity does not say, believe in Jesus because I said so. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible says that the Christian faith is based on evidence. Christianity is testable. If, in fact, if one particular fact is false, if one historical event did not happen, then the entire Christian religion is false. And here's the historical event. You can probably guess on this Easter Sunday, the historical event is the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. If Jesus is not physically raised from the dead, then Christianity is false. If Jesus died and stayed dead, then Christianity is a false religion. And that's what the Bible teaches. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians was written by the Apostle Paul. We'll start in verse 14. 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 14. And again, what it's saying is, what the Bible teaches is that Christianity is testable. There's this one fact. 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 14. Paul writes this. And if Christ has not been raised, if this historical event did not happen, Paul says, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. Your faith is ridiculous, he's saying. Verse 15, we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. In verse 17, he says it again. And if Christ has not been raised, there it is again, if Jesus has not been raised, if this historical event did not happen, what does Paul say? Your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Verse 19, he says, If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. A lot of people will say, Well, you know what? If your faith helps you deal with life, that's a good thing, even if your religion is false. And the Bible says, Wrong. <laughs> It says that is completely wrong. If Jesus stayed dead, then Christianity is false, and we Christians are pathetic. That's what Paul's saying right here. That's what the Bible teaches. Because if Jesus is not resurrected, then he has not defeated death. We have no hope, and Christianity is false. See, Christianity is different from every other religion. It's different from every philosophy. Because Christianity stands or falls on one event the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
No other religion is like this. No other, no philosophy is like this. So Christianity can be proven to be false. In other words, Christianity can be broken on the floor. And I would ask, what about your own view? Can your beliefs be tested? Can, can they be broken on the floor? What evidence could be offered to prove you wrong? See, Christianity is testable. It's verifiable. Is your own view of God, is your own view of reality verifiable? If not, if nothing could change your mind, if it can't be broken on the floor, no matter what, does that seem like a reasonable belief? Something else to think about. Christians often think, and I've thought this, Christians often think that the burden is entirely on us. It's entirely on Christians to prove the resurrection. But that's not right. Because for folks who deny the resurrection of Jesus, they have to explain the Christian church. You see, Christianity is the largest religion in the history of the world. And by the way, just as an aside, this is interesting. Sociologists tell us that worldwide atheism is actually declining. That's what sociologists see. And actually Christianity is growing. So at the same time, there are fewer and fewer fewer atheists worldwide. You know that? Now here in America, it's the other way around. Atheism is growing a little bit, and Christianity is, is shrinking a little bit. But worldwide, every year, there are fewer and fewer atheists. All right, but back to Christianity. It's the largest religion in the history of the world. And it teaches, and it has always taught, that Jesus rose from the dead. We recited the Apostles' Creed this morning. Apostles' Creed, early forms of it were like in the hundreds A.D., very, very early on. And early versions, just like we said, the Creed says... The third day, Jesus rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And from the very beginning, immediately after Jesus was crucified, his followers were claiming that he had been raised from the dead and that he ascended into heaven. He never died again. You can read about this in in places like the book of Acts. It's right after the crucifixion, and Peter and the church just keep talking about how Jesus has been raised from the dead, immediately after the crucifixion. And the Christian church has been proclaiming Jesus's resurrection continuously now for 2,000 years. So that's the, the burden on the skeptic. How do you explain that? How do you explain Christian religion? Started out as a very small group of people, now it's the largest religion in the history of the world, who have all believed, who all keep proclaiming that Jesus has been raised from the dead. One of the things that's very important in proving that Jesus has been raised from the dead is the timing of the New Testament. Critical scholars, critical scholars used to say that the Gospels were written like 100 years after Jesus' crucifixion. Nobody believes that anymore because there have been thousands and thousands of ancient copies of New Testament found all over the ancient world. Middle East, Africa, Turkey, Europe, thousands of ancient manuscripts. And they were found early on. So, so it's clear the New Testament was written shortly after Jesus' crucifixion. And we know that at least three out of four of the Gospels, and probably all four, were written within 35 or 40 years after the crucifixion. Paul's letters are even earlier. Scholars agree now that Paul's letters were written within 15 to 20 years after the crucifixion. And everything in the New Testament either explicitly talks about the resurrection of Jesus or it assumes his resurrection. So the resurrection of Jesus is the central truth of the New Testament. So the accounts of the resurrection, or the historical written count accounts of the resurrection were between 50 and 40 years after it happened. And even within those writings, you can see the church has believed in the resurrection of Jesus from the very beginning. And that Jesus was divine. 
I'm going to ask you to turn to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2 is interesting because within this chapter, there is what, what most uh, theologians and scholars believe is a little hymn, a little song that the early church had already been singing, this hymn to Christ, they call it, by the time that, that Paul wrote this, this book. Okay, so this is a little song, apparently, that the church was singing, like a hymn. It says this, Philippians 2, 5 through 11. And think about what it's claiming. It's claiming that Jesus is Lord, that he is divine immediately after the resurrection or after the crucifixion. Verse 5, it says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, see what they're saying? Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. They're already saying Jesus is equal to God. He didn't have to grasp after this. They say, but but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. In other words, Jesus is divine and he became a man. The early church is seeing this from from the jump. Verse 8, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. But it doesn't stop there. Then it says, therefore God has highly exalted him. In other words, that God raised him from the dead and exalted him in heaven and bestowed on him the name that is of every name. And then they say, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. See, the early church is saying Jesus is divine. Jesus is God. So this early song and these early writings are showing that Jesus is divine. He's exalted in heaven. He's seated at the right hand of God the Father. Again, how do, you exp- how do you explain that? Also, the first Christians were Jews, okay? They were devout, conservative Jews who were uncompromising in their monotheism. They kept saying one God. How often do conservative, devout Jews change their theology? They don't, you know, that they don't do that. So how do you explain that this group of devout, conservative Jews overnight They always say one God, and now they're worshiping this man, Jesus. How do you explain that? Also, the people who claim to be eyewitnesses to the resurrection, this is huge. The eyewitnesses, they did not recant their story even when faced with death. And this is a fact. When people are telling a lie, and especially if that lie does not benefit them, when they're telling this lie and they're threatened with death, They say, yeah, it's a lie. They acknowledge it. They stop doing that when they're threatened with death. They acknowledge the lies because they have nothing to gain by carrying a lie to the grave. But here's the thing about the apostles. Almost all of the apostles and early church leaders died for their faith, and they never denied the resurrection of Jesus. Not one of them. Not one of them denied the resurrection, not a single one. So how do you explain that? This is a quote from Chuck Colson, and I think we have it. Chuck Colson was a high-level guy in the Nixon administration. He was convicted for his part in the Watergate scandal. And Colson said this. He said, I know the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. Then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. 
You're telling me 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. So all of this evidence is part of the reason why I'm I'm absolutely convinced that Jesus has been raised from the dead. And there's actually a ton more evidence. I just don't have time to go into it this morning. So I would encourage you to, to look into this. Now listen, if you're a skeptic, if you're not a religious person, if you're skeptical of the resurrection, I can sympathize. I totally sympathize. When I began investigating this, I found it difficult to believe as well. So I was right there with you. But I would simply encourage you to study and dig into the evidence that supports the resurrection. Also, when considering this, and this is what I would tell 24-year-old me, focus on the resurrection. Focus on the resurrection. A lot of times people investigating Christianity go down a bunch of rabbit trails and they start focusing on a bunch of random stuff. And so they think to themselves, and I would think to myself, do I really want to become a Christian? I think they're weird, frankly. I don't want to really be a Christian. Who cares? Focus on the resurrection. Or they say this, well, I like this about Christianity, but I don't like that. I would just encourage you just to focus on the resurrection. Put aside those issues for now. As Paul says in in 1 Corinthians 15, focus on the resurrection. Listen, if Jesus has been raised from the dead, then he's Lord, he's God, and Christianity is true. And you have to submit to this truth, and your life has to change. This is the way it is. But if Jesus has not been raised from the dead, then Christianity is false, and you don't have to give a second thought to any of these other issues, right? So just focus on the resurrection. People people often say they find Christianity offensive because they don't like what it says about whatever, ethical issues or something. Or they, like I said, like I thought, they think religious people are weird or whatever. Who cares? The question that matters is, was Jesus raised from the dead? Is the resurrection true? It doesn't, think about it, it doesn't make sense to say, I won't believe in the resurrection of Jesus because I don't like what the Bible has to say about sexual ethics. That doesn't make any sense. That's like saying, I don't like what the Bible teaches about ethics, sexual ethics or whatever, therefore Jesus is still dead. That is totally illogical. It makes no sense. So focus on the resurrection. And I'm absolutely convinced that if you really examine the evidence, you'll conclude that Jesus actually was raised from the dead. Like millions and millions of other people throughout history, you'll be convinced of the truth of the resurrection. As I said, Christianity started out as a small group of Jewish people who claimed that a poor rabbi had been raised from the dead and now it's the largest religion in the history of the world. I think it's worth your time investigating it. I I don't think that's asking too much. Now, at the beginning of the sermon, I mentioned a young lady named Leah who went to Yale and joined a debating society. As I said, Leah was an atheist. She was raised in a secular home. Well, Leah became friends with some Yale students in this debating society, and these students were followers of Jesus. And guess what? Leah was broken on the floor. She said this, She said, when I started coming to debates, I was suddenly hearing from thoughtful, creative Christians, and because the weekly debates covered such a broad range of topics, I started hearing about how Christianity played a role in every every facet of my classmates' lives, not just how it shaped their votes. So I settled in to listen to their speeches, and I read the books they recommended. Leah is now a Christian. She went from being an atheist to being a follower of Jesus Christ because she was willing to consider the evidence. 
She was willing to be broken on the floor. And the same thing happened to me, and the same thing can happen to you. I'm going to close with this. If Jesus has been raised from the dead, and the fact is, he has. Jesus has been raised from the dead. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 20. He says, he gives all these things about if Christ has not been raised, all this, but then he says in, in 15, 20, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Jesus has been raised from the dead and death will never touch him again. And this changes everything. Jesus' resurrection changes everything because it shows that he has power over death. Jesus said this in John 10. He said, for this reason, the father loves me because I laid down my life that I may take it up again. Jesus said, no one takes my life from me. He said, but I lay it down of my own accord. Jesus said, I have authority to lay my life down and I have authority to take it up again. Jesus has the authority. He has the power over life and he has the power over death. And that means we can trust him. When he says that he will raise his people from the grave, we can trust him. And he says that. That's exactly what he promises, to raise up his people. Listen to Jesus' words. This is from John 6, verses 37 to 40. Hear Jesus speaking to you. That's, that's my prayer right now, that you will hear Jesus talking to you personally. Listen to what he says. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And listen to what Jesus said. Hear him talk to you. This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day day. Jesus' resurrection changes everything. He's the risen Lord. He has conquered hell and death. So give your life to him. Give your life to him. Turn over the controls of your life to Jesus. After Jesus died and after he was raised from the dead, people met him. Do you know that? After Jesus was raised, people met him. Now, the most important thing is for you to meet him too. Meet the resurrected King Jesus and give your life to him. A song I've been listening to all week is called All My Tears. It was written by Julie Miller and it was originally sung by Amy Lou Harris. The version I've been listening to is, is, sung, by, uh, is sung by Ann Broom. But some of the lyrics say this. It says, when I die, don't cry for me. In my father's arms, I'll be. The wounds this world left on my soul will all be healed and I'll be whole. Sun and moon will be replaced with the light of Jesus' face. And I will not be ashamed for my Savior knows my name. And the song concludes with this. Come and eat from heaven's store. Come and drink and thirst no more. So weep not for me, my friend, when my time below does end. For my life belongs to him who will raise the dead again. 
For my life belongs to him who will raise the dead again. Amen. Let's pray. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we love you and praise you. Lord, I thank you for your truth. I thank you, Jesus, most of all, that you have been raised from the dead, that you have conquered hell and death. Lord Jesus, for for folks in here who have not given their lives to you, I pray that they would do that. I pray that they would see that you are the resurrected King Jesus and that when we give our lives to you, you will raise us from the dead. Holy Spirit, work in people's hearts. I can't argue people into the kingdom, Lord. Nobody can. can, There's no amount of convincing arguments or evidence. I can't convince anybody of anything, Lord. You have to do the work, so we ask that you do that. We humbly ask. We love you. Thank you for these folks here. Thank you that they're here. I pray for your blessings on every one of them, on their families. Thank you that they took the time today to come here to church, and I pray that you would meet with them in a special way. We praise you. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.